All right. Can you all hear me? Yes? No. Somebody said no. Um, cool. Hey, y'all, my name's Austin. I'm stoked, stoked to dive into a conversation here that uh, maybe you just followed your friends into Memorial Chapel, or maybe this is something that you've wrestled through. But I think, um, like I said, for me in the last 10 years of doing ministry with junior high and high school students, this is a, a topic that I find myself running into conversationally with students over and over and over and over again. And, and the reality is you personally have probably been in a moment or you've been in relationship with somebody who's had a moment where you, you stop and pause and ask the question like, God, why is this happening, right? And, and I think uh, the reality of trials, the reality of hardship is you're, you're even as a high school student, uh, maybe a leader in this room, you're, you're either currently in a trial, like something is currently happening in your life that is difficult, that you're walking through. You're coming out of a trial. Like if you look in the rearview mirror, you know something like over the last six months or maybe the last couple of weeks, or you're walking into one, right? And, and maybe you don't know that this is going to happen yet, but over the next couple of months, over the next couple of years, even this theme, Daniel, that we've been walking through all week, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these four guys that found themselves in exile, they didn't prepare for exile during exile. They had lived so much of life in Israel, and the way that they lived life in Israel determined the way that they would live life uh, during exile. And so what I want to dive into is a little bit of this conversation of, like, what do we do when, when things don't go exactly how we think they're going to go? And, and, and maybe even the polar extreme of it, they go the opposite of how we think they're going to go. And we find ourselves in a scenario where we go, like, what? Like, why is this happening? And so I shared a little bit of this on stage, but the last couple of years um, for my wife and I, we have two little girls. Um, we have Piper, who's almost three years old, and then Phoebe, who's three months old. Uh, but both of those little girls, in my mind, are like little miracle babies. Uh, my wife and I have ha had several miscarriages. We've lost um, a handful of babies over the last five years that we've been married. And it, every single time for us that we... Uh, had a, a pregnancy terminated, there was like this moment of, some of them were really early on and doctors were like, hey, this is super normal. And others of them were like through the first trimester of like, we knew the gender of this baby. And like that wrecked me in a way that I can't, I can't explain to you, right? If you're a parent in this room, you probably know. Um, if you're not a parent in this room, you can, you can probably empathize with me. But there's something about, especially once you already have a daughter, knowing that you're gonna have another kid and then that not happening, that caused me, right? I, I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in Ecuador. I'm a pastor's kid. Like, I've been around the Bible. I've been around the church my whole life. And when you experience loss like that, when you go through trauma like that, uh, there was a moment for me where I'm just, you know, in tears going like, God, what? Like, how? I, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't get it, right? How can you be good and this happen? And when you're really honestly wrestling with God, I think, I think God meets you there in a really, really special way. And I think um, if you're anything like me, sometimes I think that we have to come to God uh, maybe cleaned up. We got to come to church cleaned up. We got to approach God with this version of ourselves that's not truly ourselves. And I think when you actually dive into scripture and you see like read Psalms and watch the way that David writes and watch, watch the way David prays and, and you start realizing like, wait, I'm allowed to pray like that? Like, I'm allowed to say those kind of things to God that I, I think we trick ourselves into thinking that we have to come to him a certain way and realizing and knowing that God already knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and still chooses to love you and still chooses relationship with you. 
creates like a, a safety with him. And as a dad now, like I understand the smallest iota of that, right? Like my little girl, Piper, homegirl can experience like the full range of emotions. She can be like fully stoked and like Tasmanian devil doing her thing. And then like 30 seconds later, the gnarliest meltdown of all time over like the smallest thing, right? Like if you've ever been around a two and a half year old before, you know what I'm talking about. And as a dad, like I'm not expecting my little girl to like clean herself up before she comes to data, right? Like when she comes to me melting down or stoked, like that's my little girl and I absolutely love my little girl and my love for her is like a drop in the bucket compared to the Niagara Falls that is like the love of God for you. And so on top of that, like on top of Paige and I's personal loss, there's just been like a spattering of, y'all ever, y'all, do you remember the show, um, what was the Ashton Kutcher show, Punked? Was it called Punked? Y'all ever seen, like, YouTube clips of that old show? Okay, I'm 31, so I t I'm old now, apparently. But there was this show on uh, MTV, like, early on where, uh, they, like, Ashton Kutcher, y'all know who Ashton Kutcher is? Oh, my Lord, okay. Um, there's this guy named Ashton Kutcher. Y'all ever heard of this, that 70s show? Thank God, okay. All four of you in this room, okay. So uh, there was this guy, and he would, like, film celebrities like playing pranks on them and then he would always pop out and be like oh you've been punked right there was like this massive joke on celebrities and they would catch it on film and whatever and they would like they would basically ruin this person's life for a day and then it would be like this hee hee ha ha joke that we would all get to laugh at afterwards and there's been several times over the last like three years where I'm like waiting for the camera crew to pop out you know what I'm saying right like you ever been through something where you're like is this a joke like is this is like is 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 somebody trying to prank me right now? And, and Paige and I, like, we've just had, over the last three years, like, thing after thing after thing after thing, whether it was, like, really good friends moving away or, uh, like, like a deep loss of a, of a friend or watching friends go through deep loss, like, over the last three years, and I won't get into it for the sake of time, but there's been, like, thing after thing after thing after thing. Like, cherry on top, y'all. <laughs> Here comes a crazy statement. I went to jail in Mexico last year, okay? Like, this is the level of, like, is this a joke, God? Like, that I feel like over the last three years that I found myself in, of, like, there was this long season of, like, running hard ministry, and the light at the end of the tunnel was this epic, like, surfing moto trip that I was going to go on in Mexico. <laughs> it didn't end with surfing or motorcycles, it ended with me in a jail cell for like two and a half days with four of my best friends. And so another story for another time, but like, yeah, you're all like, wait, what? Right? This dude's allowed to speak up here? Like, yes, I have a record in another country, okay? But uh, it's like, this is the level to which me personally, this isn't just like a theology that I'm saying like, you should figure this out. It's like, there should be a giant mirror on the back wall and I'm just gonna preach this whole message to myself and if you wanna listen in, you can. Because I'm currently teaching myself, okay, who is this God? And what is this perspective that he's inviting me into? Because, friends, if I can just be totally transparent with you, like, I'm a pastor. I have a degree in theology. I know these things up here. And yet, when the rubber hits the road, there's so many moments where I'm still like, what the frick, God? Like, what? I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't, like, this is really, really hard for me. And so we're going to dive into God's word. Um, I'm, I'm just going to give you, like, three simple things to, to remind yourself of, because I genuinely believe most of you in this room, you don't need to be taught something brand new. You just need to be reminded of a truth you already know, okay? So Genesis uh, chapter 1, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. If you have a Bible with you and you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'm just going to kind of flip through the text here. But 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, talks about the fact that we were created in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God in, invites us into doing life his way. But this is, uh, a pastor recently said this, and it kind of blew my mind. Do you know that the only thing in creation that has a hard time obeying God is us? Right? Isn't that kind of nuts? The only thing in all of creation that God created is, is the peak of his creation. It's male and female. Like, we are the only things in creation that wrestle with obeying God. Everything else does. And so male and female, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we kind of break it, right? Adam and Eve, there's a, there, we have an, a very real enemy, and that enemy in the form of a snake comes in and, and sows a seed of doubt in Adam and Eve's mind with four words. Four words changed the history of mankind, and it was these four words. Did God really say? Right? Why is this significant? Hey, the number one thing that Satan was trying to do in Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 was get us to doubt who God is and doubt what God says. Hey, if, we can, if he can create a lack of trust in the character of God and create a lack of trust in what God says, then, he's, then he starts sowing into our minds, maybe God isn't good and maybe what he says isn't important. And so these four words changed the history of mankind. Did God really say? Why? Because Adam and Eve start going, well, maybe, maybe we should take things into our own hands. And maybe we can't trust God. Maybe we can't trust what he said. And when they take things into their own hands, sin comes into the picture. And my favorite definition of sin right now is an unwillingness to believe that what God wants for us is actually our deepest happiness. Right? That sin is our unwillingness to believe that what God wants for us is actually our deepest happiness. I watch this happen all the time with my little girl, right? Uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old will wake up at 7 a.m. and go, Dad, I want ice cream. Right? If I wanted Piper to be happy, what do I, want to, what do I give her? Ice cream. 7 a.m. ice cream. Heck yeah, why not, right? But if I want Piper to actually be happy, what do I say? No. Right? And, like, we get that with a two-and-a-half-year-old, right? Like, we understand that. And yet, when it comes to our life, none of us like no. Right? And none of us like praying for things. Like, you ever prayed for something and it didn't work out, and then you go, what the heck, God? Maybe you're not real. Like, that's super real. That's honest. And, and, and like, I'm not saying that's a bad prayer. The, the best thing you can do when you're doubting God, the best thing that you can do when you're wrestling with him is wrestle with him. That's the best thing you can do. If you're doubting who God is or doubting the truth of his word, the worst thing you can do is either settle for some mediocre version of a relationship with God and just kind of go, eh, I tried prayer, I tried church, it's kind of, it's whatever. I'll go to camp every once in a while, I'll go to youth group if I can. And we just kind of settle for this like, eh, version of following him. Or we go, I tried that and we walk away because we didn't get what we wanted. Right? Which is super real. Like I'm not trying to like uh, downplay that, but if we can zoom way out and like make it about my two and a half year old and not about you, like let's, let's not personalize it. That would be like me going, hey, hey, Piper girl, uh, no, you can't have ice cream. And her looking at me going, I knew you didn't love me. And it's like, uh, okay, right? And with a two-and-a-half-year-old, we all look at that and go, oh, that's cute. But when we're 17 and we go, hey, God, like this is what I'm really wrestling through, and it seems like God is silent on the issue, we start doubting. And we go, God, I knew you didn't love me. I knew you weren't for me. And so the reason I want to back all the way up to the beginning of this story is because we need a little bit of context to understand. In the very beginning, God created us with free will, with free choice, to love him and respond to the love that he first gave us. Right? This is the greatest story ever told. 
that's hardly ever told in its entirety. And this book is all about what God has done to get to you, not what you have to do to get to God. Right? And, and some, of, some of us mistake that. We live our life like white-knuckling Christianity, going like, I got to do all of the right things. I got to like, and we're coming to God expecting that we're supposed to be this certain way. And then when things don't go well, we go, God, I've been doing all these things for you. Why is my life not working out for me? And the reason I want to back all the way up is go, like, you were made from perfect love and for a relationship of perfect love. And it was our doubt that broke that. And the rest of the Bible is God demonstrating to his creation what he's willing to do and the lengths that he's willing to go. Genesis 3 is the first gospel message we see. We see, Jesus we see God talk about his son in Genesis chapter 3 and the good news of the gospel that's going to come from that. In the rest of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation is all about this Jesus character and what God is, gonna, is willing to do, the lengths that he's willing to go to demonstrate that type of love. Right? But the, here's the reality. Forced love is not love at all. Right? We get that. Right? On uh, August 11, 2018, I married Paige Payne, and if we got home from our honeymoon and I gave her a binder full of things that she had to do in order to love me, and it was like item one, right? paragraph three, like here's all of the things that you have to do in order to prove that you're a loving wife. None of you would go, aww, that's so sweet, that's so cute. No, you'd be like, Yo, like that's slavery. <laughs> like that's that's not romance, right? Like if there was a binder full of things and every morning Paige had to like wake up early and like read through the things and be like, okay, like this is how I have to be, like Cinderella, Cinderella, right? And like she just went and I'm like, mm, that's that's a good loving wife. None of you would be like, mm, preach, right? You'd be like, homegirl, get out, right? Like what? Like, what are we talking about? So God in the beginning goes, forced love is not love at all. So I am love, and I'm going to create from a place of love, but I'm not going to create robots. I'm going to create humans that are made in my image that have the ability to choose to love and obey or to choose to not love and not obey. And when distrust comes in, right, brokenness enters into the world. So a lot of our suffering, a lot of our brokenness, the things that we walk through, is simply a result of the fall. And now we have the ability to bring suffering on ourselves, right? You can make a bad decision, and sin is, there's absolutely grace, right? The free gift of God that none of us deserve for every sin that any of you have ever committed. But the reality of sin is it also has a consequence, Right? And so with that consequence, sometimes comes suffering. But sometimes that suffering is just a product of the fall. Right? When you see a 25-year-old get a cancer diagnosis, and we go, what? 25-year-olds aren't supposed to get cancer. We look at that and we go, I, I, don't, I don't think that 25-year-old has anything in his life that's like, well, you did this, this, and this, therefore cancer. It's like sometimes there's just a brokenness that exists in the world that we look at the psalmist just crying out to God going like, God, I don't get this. And if nothing else, friends, like the brokenness that we see in the world around us should create a, a hunger for us for, for eternity. I love the C.S. Lewis quote that says, if we find in our hearts, if we find in this world that nothing can satisfy, that nothing can fulfill, maybe just maybe we were made for another world. And some of that brokenness, right? Some of the things that I've walked through personally over the last three years, I think with the right perspective allows me to wake up and long for eternity. And I just go, God, I, I don't get the brokenness that exists around me right here, right now, but it makes me desire, long for a day where that brokenness will cease to exist. 
Right? This is the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told in its entirety, and we know how this story ends. Right? We see in the book of Revelation that Jesus returns, and he says that there will be no more tears, there will be no more brokenness, there will be no more pain, there will be no more war, there will be no more cancer, there will be no more loss that Jesus will restore fully and completely. But in the middle of it right now, we exist in this like already, right? we've seen Jesus, we've seen the cross, we have the good news of the gospel, but not yet, it hasn't been fully fulfilled. And so what do we do with this? That's, that's kind of the why it exists in the first place. Now, what do we do in the middle of suffering? Um, if you turn over in the book of, if you're already in the book of Genesis and you turn to Genesis chapter 39, uh, we're going to see a guy named uh, Joseph. And Joseph is is one of those stories for me. There's three stories in the Old Testament. There's plenty more in the Bible that speak on this issue. But for me, the story of Joseph, the story of Moses, the story of David are three stories that I go back to consistently where I look at these guys that lived a life that I go, I'm not sure I would have been okay in the middle. Right? You know when you know the end of the story like, things kind of make sense, but if you're in the middle of it, you're like, wait, what? Hey, like, does that ever happen? Like, you ever, you ever like, uh, you've seen a movie before, but you're watching it with somebody who's never seen it before, and they're, like, on the edge of their seat in the tension, and you're just kind of calm, cool, and collected because you've already seen it? Like, you know the tension? Right? Especially in, like, a suspenseful movie. Right? You, ever, you ever watch your friend because you know they're about to jump out of their seat, and you're not even watching the movie? It's like, you know how the story ends. And so in, in these stories, both Joseph, David, Moses, like we have the perspective now of knowing how the story ends, but in the middle of it, right? If you can do your best to put yourself in the middle of a story, you start to learn and understand and process like, hmm, why did God put this story in the Bible? Like Joseph's one of those stories where he was the youngest brother, bunch of brothers, like 12 of them. And uh, as a little brother, he was pretty annoying, right? Anybody have an annoying little sibling? in the room, okay? I am that annoying little sibling. I'm the youngest of four, and so Joseph and me, super relatable. But here's the, th here's the thing, okay? Joseph, he has, this, he has these dreams, and he's kind of prideful with his brothers. He goes out, and he's like annoying them. He's telling them how he, they're all gonna bow down to him one day, that he's like better than them. And if you back up, you can read this whole story for yourself. But Joseph annoys his brothers to the point where they look at each other, right? When Joseph is, like he's approaching them, and they go, let's kill him. And it's like legitimately, like this is the point they get to. And some of you have probably been like, like you've gotten to that point with your sibling, like let's kill him, but like probably not actually, okay? Joseph's brothers are serious to the point where one brother has to talk them out of killing Joseph and his alternative is, hey, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. As if that's better, right? Like these are siblings with some serious riff and they go, let's kill him, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. And so we see Joseph get sold into slavery. Like, his story kind of goes from bad to worse. And then in Genesis chapter 39, we see Joseph, um, he comes down to Egypt. He's been sold into slavery in Egypt and he gets bought by a guy named Potiphar. So Joseph, uh, Genesis chapter 39 Verse 1 says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Hey, if you're reading, pause there and look up at me real quick. This is a moment in, in Joseph's story where it seems like, ah, God, you're at work here. 
Joseph went through something really gnarly. He was sold into slavery. He probably, like, I promise you, there was probably a moment where he was, like, being transferred from his, what he thought was going out to his brothers into slavery where he went, wait, what? This is not how I saw this day going. This is not how I saw these couple weeks going. And he finds himself bought by another human being, which is bananas, right? And then he goes and he lives in this guy's household. And then all of a sudden, he rises the ranks in this dude's household. And it almost seems like, oh, God, you're at work. This is what you're doing until we read the story. And it says this in uh, verse 7. It says, now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, aggressive. Eh? But he refused. And he said, with me in charge, he told him, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. LOL, right? Like that seems like it makes sense. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her, which there's some wisdom in that. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the other household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. Right? This story is wild. Right? Like, homegirl wanted Joseph. And he, she says, come to bed with me. And he's like, no. She's like, come to bed with me. And he's like, look. Potiphar's put me in charge of everything, and he's given me everything in his household except for you because you're his wife, right? Like, I'm not coming to bed with you. And then one day, he walks into the house, and it's, like, eerily quiet. He's like, what's going on? And she's like, pops out of nowhere. I, I imagine her, like, surprise. And she jumps out, and she goes, come to bed with me. He says, no. She grabs by the cloak, rips his cloak off, and then he runs out of the house. Y'all, if you think the Bible's boring, you haven't read it. Right? This story is nuts, okay? And we see Joseph run out of the house, and then Potiphar's wife has his cloak, and she spins this tale on the rest of the, the chapter. Again, you can go back and read it. But Potiphar comes home, and she said, look, Joseph, this dude you put in charge, he tried to sexually assault me. And I was able to grab this cloak off of him, and I protected myself. And Potiphar turns, and he's like, Joseph, how could you? And Joseph's like, uh, I, what? Uh, uh, there's no one else there to defend his story. And so Potiphar has to choose, do I believe this slave that I bought, or do I believe my wife? And he chooses to believe his wife, and he takes Joseph, and he throws him in prison. And you look at this story, yo, and you go, that's not fair, right? Like, Joseph went from being sibling to slave, and then he rose the ranks in Potiphar's household, and you're like, oh, maybe this is what God was doing. Like, he wanted to take him out of that situation, to put him in this situation, and then he's going to get into leadership, and Joseph's like, oh, okay, God. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself in like a super unfair scenario, and he's thrown into prison, okay? Turn over to chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Which, pause real quick, and, and can we just all be thankful for a second that we don't live in a time where there's like pharaohs? A, a cupbearer, you know what his job was? Literally, drink something, make sure he didn't die so that Pharaoh could drink it. And then there's like a chief baker who like his job is to make food and hopefully not piss off Pharaoh. But these two people, they do something to make him mad and Pharaoh is like all powerful. Like say what you will about politics in America. Like we don't live in this type of day and age where it's like, you just looked at me wrong, prison, right? It's like, this is wild. So these two people, they find themselves in the same prison that Joseph's in. 
said after they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker, the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, they had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. And so Joseph goes on to interpret these dreams and then skip all the way down to verse 14. And Joseph's talking to the cupbearer and the chief baker, and he says, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. And he goes on to interpret his dream as well. And then skip all the way down to verse 23, right? They get released from prison, the Pharaoh or the, the cupbearer and the baker, they go to Pharaoh, and they're they're, you know, they do their thing, the dreams come true, whatever. Verse 23 it says, The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Chapter 41, verse 1. When, how many years? Y'all, if we're not careful, we can read the Bible and we can skip over a verse like when two full years had passed and just keep reading. Feel that. Two years. Two years is a long time. Like he went from brother to slave, from slave to prisoner, and even in prison, right? God puts the chief baker and the chief cupbearer in prison, and they find themselves there, and Joseph's like, I'm going to interpret their dreams. They go out, and he's like, hey, when you're with Pharaoh, remember me. I've been wrongfully imprisoned. And then the the cupbearer goes out, and he forgets Joseph, and another two years go on. From the moment that Joseph is sold into slavery— to the moment that things are going to kind of make sense for Joseph. He has his aha moment of what God's up to. There's a 17-year gap. Some of you in this room aren't 17 years old. And for those of you that are 17 years old, imagine your story goes from bad to worse, and then from worse to even worse, and then from even worse to forgotten. And over 17 years, God is at work, and he's moving, and he's building character, and he's forming. And an eternal God with an eternal perspective is up to something. And yet you and I, y'all, I don't like waiting 17 minutes for something, right? Like if I door dash something to my house and it takes longer than the thing says, I'm pissed. I don't like waiting, right? Like if I click play on a, on a YouTube video and it starts buffering, I'm on to the next YouTube video. Like I, I don't like to wait. That, like, that's a part of, I, I think, ingrained in our culture a little bit. Like, we're, we are not a patient people. And we look at the Bible, and for the sake of time, right, like, we look at a guy like David, from the moment he was anointed to the moment he would actually become king, 22 years. You look at a guy like Moses. Moses didn't meet God until he was 80 Like, look at the Bible, and person after person after person after person after person, they walk through some incredibly gnarly things before God uses them. And I think a lot of the times when we're in the middle of suffering, we ask the wrong question. If you find yourself in the middle of brokenness, if you find yourself in a moment where you're like, God, what? Like like I have for the last three years, I think rather than asking God, when am I going to get out of this? Maybe we, we switch the question and go, God, what are you trying to teach me in the midst of this? Right? And here's the last thing I'll say. Um, there's no such thing as a camouflage Christian. It doesn't exist. And in 2023, we're going to feel that more and more and more. We're going to experience that more and more and more. The way that you suffer is going to be one of the number one testimonies you're going to have in the world. Right, the Bible describes followers of Jesus as, as a light in a dark place, as a city on a hill that can't be hidden. 
And if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to make your entire life about him, if you want to surrender everything to him and understand who he is and what he's done on our behalf and, and make him Lord of your life, not a part of your life, right? N- not like a two days a week or a camp a year, but if you want to make everything about him and, and, and enter into the greatest journey of all time of, as a follower of Jesus, right? watch how the hard things that you go through with the lens that God is ultimately in control and understanding that he is with you in the middle of that. You don't have to suffer alone. You don't have to suffer with just, well, one day we'll be in heaven. But understanding that in the middle of that suffering, God might be trying to teach you something. In that middle of that brokenness, God might be trying to teach you something. Watch how that testimony of being in the middle of it and still praising and still glorifying, not ignorantly, right? Like, the call of the follower of Jesus is not to suffer and just any, like, have a smile on your face anyways and be like, hey, brother. Like, that's not the call of the Christian. You don't have to just walk around with, like, a big old smile on your face and you're like, what's wrong with her? And you're like, I don't know, but she's one of those Jesus people. Like, freaky. Right? Like, she's going through it and she's still like, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right? Like, that's not the call of the Christian. Right? But John, uh, John says this in chapter 16 of, of the book of John. He says this. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's not one of those promises that we put on a lot of mugs, right? Like, when was the last time you saw that on a poster with, like, a dove on it, and there was, like, a verse on the poster of, like, your grandma's house, and it was, like, in this world, you will have trouble, and you're just like, hmm, that's so encouraging. It says Jesus said it, like, point blank. It was a promise of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. And then we have trouble in the world, and we're like, what the... God, I've been doing all these things for you. I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, I'm a pretty good person. Why is this happening? And we look at a promise of Jesus going, hey, he said it. In this world, you will have trouble. But the very next part of that verse is significant. It says, take heart. I've overcome the world. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. God defines it. It says, knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You and I are invited into having a relationship with Jesus, with the God of the universe, and in the middle of whatever you're walking through, he promises to be there with you, right? And, and I'll just close with this. Y'all seen the, y'all seen the um, Disney cartoon, Little, or I almost said Little Mermaid, Lion King. Y'all seen the Lion King? Like the OG cartoon version of it. Okay, some of you have some serious work to do. You need to watch Punked and Lion King, okay? If you haven't watched either one of those things, I can't recommend them because I got in trouble for recommending things years ago, but I feel pretty safe recommending The Lion King, actually. I'll, I'll recommend that one. But there's a scene in Lion King, right? Help me out, y'all. Uh, Simba is trying to like do his like flirty lion thing with Nala, and he takes her to the elephant graveyard. You remember this scene? And then the hyenas come up, and Simba steps up, and he's like, I'm going to be the man. And he steps up, and he looks at the hyenas, and he goes, rawr, rawr. and they all start laughing, right? And they're like, <laughs> do it again, right? Like, we want to hear that little baby roar again. Like, do it again, for real. Like, do it again. And then Simba opens up his mouth, and he goes, and what happens? Mufasa roars, right? And it's like he opens up his little lion mouth, but Mufasa's roar comes out, and Mufasa jumps out, and the hyenas are like, yo. Like, they, they all run away, and Mufasa traps him, and there's this funny little interaction with the hyenas, and they all run away, and he goes, this is my son. Right? Here's the coolest thing about the trial that you're in right now or the trial that you're coming out of, or the trial that you're walking into. Hey, James chapter 4 says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. 
that the God of the universe who designed everything we see around us in this place, that when he said, let there be light, light listened. Y'all know how nuts that is? Right? Like if you and I say like, tree, grow, creation's like, no. Like, <laughs> who are you? You're like, I'm Austin Payne. They're like, I don't care. Right? But when the God of the universe said like, ocean, you go there, it listened. That God says, draw near to me exactly where you're at. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. Right? Like that God knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he invites you to come near to him. And he promises when you come near to me, I will come near to you. I will draw near to you. So when you walk into every trial, right, don't walk into the trial as Simba, going like, I got this life. I'm gonna white knuckle it, pull myself up on my bootstraps and go rah, rah. Right? Walk into life going, I got the God of the universe. Romans chapter eight says, for those that are found in Jesus, Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans chapter eight talks about being adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. And then he ends Romans eight with, there is nothing that can separate you from the, from the love that God has for you. He enters into every trial with you. Don't miss that, okay? Be encouraged today and know and understand suffering is just gonna happen. Right? Nobody ever ran a marathon before and ended the marathon and said, that was a hard marathon. No one qualifies the word marathon with like difficult. It's just, I ran a marathon and everybody's like, woof, that's a lot, right? We're not supposed to run that long, like knees, ouch, right? Like no one ever says I ran a hard marathon. It's just, I ran a marathon and everybody goes, respect, right? When we live life as followers of Jesus, like when we go, life is hard, it's, it's a little bit like, yeah, we're not made for this world. And in the middle of it, right, when, we're fi when we find ourselves in that struggle, one, if you want to cry out to God and go, what the heck, I don't get this, he can handle it. He's big enough. But in the middle of that, would we encourage each other? Would we remind each other, draw near to God and he would draw near to you? Maybe this is your 17 years. Maybe this is your 22 years. Maybe this is your season where God's trying to demonstrate and teach you something and remind you of something and he has something for you on the other side. Like, I'm not saying on the other side of that trial, it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies, right? But what if God was trying to form your character and use you for mighty things in his kingdom? Hey, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to be done. God, thank you for this crew. Thank you for these men and women in this room. God, I pray that you would raise up mighty men and women, followers of you, God, that no matter what they walk through, we know that you walk through it with us. And that, God, we're called to live on mission, to go and make disciples of all nations. But we're not given that task alone, that you even end that promise with, I will be with you. And, God, as we go back to our sports teams, our families, our communities, our schools, God, when things get difficult, when we walk through the heat of life, with the way that we suffer, just be a beacon of light in the midst of darkness. We love you. Thanks for loving us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.